Hello, I'm Lucy Mercer. And I'm Livia Franchini. Welcome to the Too Little Too Hard podcast, where we talk to writers about the intersections of work, time and value in relation to their creative practice and literature as a whole. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Too Little Too Hard podcast. We're delighted to have Yara Drigasana and Anthony Anaxagoru as guests on the podcast today to talk about their amazing writing featured in the publication, as well as how writing intersects with questions at work, time, and value. Yara Rodriguez Fowler grew up in South London. She's written two novels, Stubborn Archivist, published in 2019, and There Are More Things, published in 2022. Stubborn Archivist was longlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize and the Desmond Elliott Prize. Yara was named one of the Observer's hottest tip debut novelists and was shortlisted for the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year. There are more things who was nominated for the Orwell Prize for Political Fiction and the Goldsmith Prize. As a work in progress, it received the John C. Lawrence Award from the Society of Authors. In 2023, Yara was named one of Granter's best young British novelists. She also works as a climate justice organiser. Anthony Anaxagaru's third collection, Heritage Aesthetics, published by Granter in 2022, won the Royal Society of Literature Onachi Prize and was shortlisted for the Anglo-Hellenic League Runcelands Award. His second collection, After the Formalities, published in 2019, is a Poetry Book Society recommendation and was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize. He's also written How to Write It, published by Murky Books in 2022, a guide to the craft of poetry and fiction. He's also artistic director of Outspoken and publisher of Outspoken Press and the editor-in-chief of Propel magazine, which features the work of poets yet to publish a first collection. In 2023, he was elected as a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. We're really delighted to be in conversation and to bring you in conversation. We thought we'd start with Yara's piece, The Romance of the Book Deal, and I'll just give a quick summary before a question. Romance of the Book Deal turns to the means by which books and novels in particular are produced, giving a succinct yet exhaustive overview of the financial operations at play behind the mainstream publishing industry and their repercussions on the quality and character of the literature it produces. You describe the effects of consolidation where a few companies come to own most of a market through gradual acquisition of smaller companies. And this is increasingly the case with publishing internationally and certainly already a reality in the UK. As you discuss, it leads to a more homogenous range of books and offer in content and form, which chases public taste for the sake of reliable profit. The personal story you open your article with felt familiar to me and I'm sure to many other published writers. And it's funny in a way because as writers with an awareness of how capitalism functions, of striking barriers to corporate industries, of market project, one would think we're going to publish with our eyes fully open. Yet, as you discuss in your piece, particularly for debut authors, something stands in the way of that clarity, which is the writer's own romanticized fantasy of publishing a novel. And I feel like I've had so many conversations through the years where at least on an emotional level, publication feels like a more ambivalent experience, maybe like a physical engagement with the notion of being a writer, which I guess corresponds to beginning one's career or working as a writer. And what I really liked about your piece is that it probes that very nexus, something that's come up in Sophie Courses about reading too, which is this idea of an affect, an emotion or a romantic view that comes in the way of seeing the capitalist machinery clearly when it's applied to publishing in books. And I just wonder, is it because for a moment we allow ourselves to become a part of it? Is it because we need to hold on to that faith in literature and what it can do? And I suppose, what do you think we can do to hold on to the good part of that romance, maybe the love of that? I like your suggestion at the end of your piece of transforming it into a collective project when you say that unionizing is perhaps a better romance to <laughs> believe in. <laughs> Yeah, and thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here talking to you and to have been invited to write that piece and by your whole project. I think it's really, really good and I'm really glad you're doing it. Yeah, so I guess I think that's right that, first of all, unless you have really paid attention and studied the inside of the industry, which isn't even always possible before you start getting involved with it, then what we're going off are cultural representations of what it means to get a book deal 
And yeah, I mentioned the Princess Diaries because in the Princess Diaries, Mia, the teenager, you know, all she wants to do is get a book deal by the time she's 25. But, you know, she also tells you every chapter how much her waist measures because she has an eating disorder. I don't mean to compare the two because that's kind of crass, but I guess it's very natural to have a romanticized view of the industry if you're not actually come into contact with it. You've just come into contact with books, which are things you have like a wonderful, unalienated relationship to. And I think the other side of that is, um, I guess I was talking about myself having this kind of middle-class Hermione Granger type relationship to elite institutions where you're like, I jump through hoops and I get praise and that's what I do. And I think if you're that kind of person, I've certainly found that, yeah, you can be part of institutions and jump through their hoops and get hurt by them often because I'm thinking about universities as well and all these different institutions that actually do cause a lot of harm. At some point you learn that you're not going to win according to their game or you can win. But actually, there's more, there's more to be gained by rejecting those institutions, rejecting the idea of meritocracy and organizing and making art together with your peers rather than on your own, just trying to hit certain benchmarks, like having a book deal published. I think we can get caught up in the romance. Ultimately, you know, are you going to tell the truth about the industry and organize with your peers or not? Like, it's, there is an official picket line, but are you going to be a little scab or not? Are you going to hope that? you are the chosen one and you do well in this industry or are you going to be like, no, I'm going to fight for a better one. So I hope that makes sense and isn't too long-winded. But yeah, what I write about at the end is, and I will talk about this later with the, the quote I've brought along, but the way to fight consolidation is either through government action to break up mergers and break up big companies and or to organize as workers through active unions that are willing to take industrial action. And in terms of staying with the romance of it, I think it's really important that we just remember it's totally bonkers that these massive corporations have somehow become the arbiters of what is good novels or good fiction. And if we want to try and get published and play their game, obviously great, like I still want to get published, but I'm not going to keep locating that the value of my work and certainly not the value of myself in them. And I recently started going to this night in South London. I've been a few times. It's called How to Catch a Poet. Probably queer anarchist. It started with How to Catch a Pig, which is a kind of DIY band. And then they did How to Catch a Poet. And there's an act there that is called 10 Minute Tales. This guy, Sam, he has all these little pieces that he's written in 10 minutes that are all really funny, really creative, really surreal, and somebody plays some music. But in the interval, everyone is invited to write a little 10-minute tale and share them. And that for me was like, oh, actually, this is how art should be or can be. Writing that anyone can do, there's not all these professional barriers. And it was way more fun than going to a reading of loads of dry novels. So I guess that made me think about alternative ways of imagining and writing as communal and democratic and not professionalized. And that's not to say let's not publish any more books, but it gave me an alternative way of thinking about writing and art and how we did it. Absolutely. A um, couple of things that I wanted to pick up on. One thing I'm really grateful that you mentioned is DIY and punk spaces, because I feel that as an educator who now works in higher education, I still cling onto some of the vocabulary that I've discovered in those community-based spaces, such as sort of refusing Luckily, in my current job, I'm not the one to work along those lines, but I have been in situations where working precariously employed as an hourly tutor. Some of the things that I was asked to teach were to do with entering the industry. And I always rejected professional skills, especially when somebody's still learning to write. It seems counterintuitive to teach somebody how to navigate an industry when they're still reckoning with what they want to do with the text itself. I'm not teaching how to approach the industry. I am demystifying it for you. And as you were talking about punk spaces, these tools are here for everybody, but we don't know how to access them. I was thinking about how that linked with this idea of a romance. And also it's something that comes up, I think, in Anthony's essay as well, which is to do with the visibility of these processes. Both your articles have had a lot of exposure on social media since we launched the issue. And a lot of the reactions were, thank you for pulling these concepts out and offering them to people that perhaps don't know they exist. That's the problem with an industry is that we don't know, we don't understand the ramifications of it. Maybe that knowledge isn't that available sometimes. I don't feel that it is. Yeah, I think what well, I'll quickly add to that. I think it's a difference between 
teaching someone like vocational skills about how to get into an English industry without criticizing it. And like maybe that knowledge could, should come via a union. But also that piece that I wrote, I would not have been able to write it without my partner, who is an academic lawyer who writes about consolidation. And this information is out there, but I wouldn't have had the confidence unless, you know, I didn't get a US book deal because the publisher that had done my first book was being acquired by HarperCollins and HarperCollins said no more quote unquote risky acquisitions. And I took that really personally. And my partner just went, it's not you, it's capital and consolidation. Like this is just capitalism. It's literally not about you at all. So I think that literacy in talking about consolidation would be really useful for us to have as writers. And again, I think should be coming from our unions that should be organizing, asking questions like, what is the harm of these big companies being so big? Shall I go on to Anthony, maybe bringing in your essay and then we'll come back to these things. Anthony, you provide a much needed comprehensive and in-depth overview of how poetry as an essential non-asset can be understood in relation to capitalist notions of value. Your perspective and experience on this as a poet and publisher is invaluable as you are able to outline many aspects to poetry that otherwise may remain invisible. Thinking about poetry as a commodity, you look at several things. The labour value of poetry, how much poets can earn from their work and the lack of prizes and funding. The personal value of poetry, what poets hope to subjectively obtain from poetry, with the caveat that writing poetry does require the investment of time and money. Cultural value, how poets themselves come to embody the value of their book and the way that cultural relevance is used to add value to books, although not necessarily in ways that generate economic value. The material value of poetry books, the relation of poetry to financial speculation, where poetic thought is a form of speculation that's commodified. And within that, how, if poetic thought is commodified, as in Instagram poetry, it tends to be a literalizing homogenous manner where the contents must be instrumental to gain a sense of value. You then finish by talking about poetry as a kind of non-value that undermines the value systems discussed. Could you talk a little about the essay and perhaps what experiences or thoughts inspired you to write it? Yeah, thanks for having me, by the way. Um, it's great to be here. And I really enjoyed trying to look at the complexities of, of what we do, which everyone's coming at it from a slightly different place. It's been really illuminating to see it all shine lights on these different dark areas. I think with my essay, I was really interested in looking at how value is accrued. And as Yara was saying, who's the arbiter? And I think I've always been interested in how, you know, like I watch how poetry moves online and I watch how poetry moves as a publisher and I watch how it moves within the writer and what you get are three different kind of modes of interaction and the poetry that say you put it on Twitter and it goes viral, gets 560 retweets and whatever else. I read those poems and I'm just like, wow, really? And I cast the judgment, right? I make judgment on that stuff. And I'm interested in one, why I make the judgment. Why do I feel compelled to want to say, look at this poem. And then the poems that I like that I put up on Twitter. And I've got 20,000 followers. So there's enough people on there who are watching this stuff. Get 12 likes. And I think this is a banging poem. Um, and I'll take it into my poetry school group, who are 15 people that have obviously invested in my kind of curation of what I think is a good poem. And they love that poem. And they're taking the poem, like the Good Bones poem, and I'll give it to them. And they'll be like, well, this is crap. And so I'm interested in how you create these very superficial reactionary markers, but then how does that translate to capital? So if you do have an amazing poem that goes viral, should that equate to a lot of money? Because if you have a number one hit in music, you equate that to money or a tour or something that could potentially create revenue. Whereas in poetry, sure, you might win a cash prize. But the metrics of all that are all skewed. That's a complete circus. So you can't really invest in prize culture because of how material it is. So then where are you left? As Yara's piece was saying, commercial publishers are also completely skewed in how they measure work because it's all about marketability and subject. 
So anyone who is doing anything interesting at a language level or at a level of thought, I looked at as risky, as intellectual or as cerebral. So all of those machinations of how it works are what kind of led me to want to write the piece through kind of a late capitalist lens and obviously poetic thought and marketability led me to Instagram poetry, which is completely generic. And I know people who started an Instagram account in 2019 and had never read poetry before that and followed a bag of Instagram poets and now have 60, 70,000 followers. And they're literally just writing today's big bad, tomorrow will be good. I promise you. And that's it. That's the poem. And it gets 50, 20,000 likes and that you labor for a year, two years, three years on a book, you put it out there, you put a poem up and it gets 12 likes. So I'm saying that's what I'm really interested in. I feel like this does lie in some big way behind this essay because it relates very much to an idea of populism and accessibility. When we're thinking about the kind of literalism, the kind of form that you're referencing here, but also in the way that we're saying that these extractive systems tend to simplify things. Yeah. To marketize something, it, it has to be reduced. You say in the essay, formal difficulty is considered a niche, a non-commodity, a more tricky negotiation, assuming the masses to be too well adjusted to the insipid dross of mainstream popular culture. A poem which employs clearer or more simplistic ideas through its language formation so as to ensure meaning making is less obfuscated panders to the extractive utilitarian function of capitalism, which demands a transactional exchange of poetry as an everyday appliance, where meaning can be easily identified and lifted out from the language to benefit or enhance the reader's life instantly. I was going to ask you, actually, in reference to your own work, like your recent collection, how to just very much moves against this direction where there is a kind of multiplicity of meaning in a non-linear time frame. But I guess my question is, was writing against this grain a kind of political or ethical stance, as it were? And I think it's a really thorny issue because so much is put on the idea that to make something democratic, it has to be simplified. Yeah. Well, I think poetry has always resisted capitalist dictums, which is what I open up by saying is that you're dealing with an art form that is always pushed against convention. It's always resisted whatever society commodity has tried to throw in the history of the avant-garde poets purposefully wrote so nobody would read, so nobody would buy it. They wanted to be ugly and distasteful at an aesthetic level. That was part of the modus operandi. So I, I think that because of the different, I guess, schools and traditions, you have to break poetry down into subsections. Otherwise you can't tackle it because there is a difference between spoken word adjacent poetry, people that have come from spoken word and performance to poets who have always like the Marxist poets, the avant-garde poets who had the luxury of going to Oxford or Cambridge and from their lovely offices are writing stuff that no one gives the monkeys about and purposefully doing that as well. Like that's part of the vibe. So I think that there are distinctions between the democracy of poetry. But I think for me, the bigger argument isn't necessarily the level of poetics. It's the invite. It's what the reader does when they're inside the poem. And I think that, and this is a, a much larger cultural issue when it comes to anti-intellectualism, but also the fear of getting a poem wrong that happens at school, like school rattles you and you go into a poem thinking there is a kind of predetermined answer that you have to be knowledgeable about cracking the code. And if you get it wrong, then you're stupid. And so I feel that poetry has that pretense that makes people feel slightly anxious, which is why poems, the Ikea poetry that comes flat packed, is already done. You just assemble the little bits and bobs. That's a lot more popular. I look at my own family. I don't come from a bookish background. I'm a working class kid. No one read growing up. My mum and dad come to poetry nights now. And the stuff that they really feel connected to is the stuff that we would regard as popular, pop poetry, because it's rhetorical, it's direct, it's guided. But the stuff that they turn around and say, yeah, I didn't get that. When I ask, what didn't you get? They're like, I don't know what it was about. And I'm like, well, if you change the question, 
But if you change the way you look at it, pull meaning out from, as opposed to apply meaning to what happens then. So the kind of poetry that I'm interested in, and I'm 40 years old, if you asked me 15, 20 years ago, I would have given you a completely different answer is that I want to now apply meaning to a piece of text, as opposed to a, me, a piece of text, tell me what it wants me to think and feel about it. And, and that's just where I am in my reading journey as a reader. Whereas when big publishers come in and they throw a ton of money at a particular aesthetic, that then creates the gold standard. So it makes that kind of mode of writing the thing that everyone aspires to. And that's the problem because then it makes all the other kinds of writing look like obfuscating, impenetrable and purposefully difficult. Where it's not, it's actually the most democratic way of putting things together. But people just don't trust themselves inside a piece of art. You mentioned the anti-intellectualism. I feel like that there is such a reactionary strain behind this idea of accessibility that's incredibly patronising. That basically is stay in your lane. It's not up to you to make meaning for yourself. Venturing into the indirect is seen as dangerous. And actually there's been such a long history of suspicion of various types of intellectualism in British culture, to put it more broadly, but especially in poetry. But that language is always shrouded in this idea of accessibility. So it's a kind of perceptual gaslighting. Um, And at times it is difficult to know. Even as I'm saying this, I'm like, am I just saying this as somebody who's done a PhD? Am I coming from this obviously very privileged viewpoint, having had that education? I don't know. Maybe you you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, it's very difficult because I think even within education, you got a PhD, but no one gave you a PhD. Like you worked for a PhD. And, And I feel that there is this constant pushback. And I think we feel, I feel guilty sometimes. Like I make good money from my poetry. Like I teach, I perform, I write, I publish. I'm pretty privileged when it comes to what I want to do and how I want to do it. And sometimes I feel guilty for that. I don't have any academic credentials. I never went to university. I've literally just worked out as I've gone along. And I have to tell myself that, you know, you fight to be in a space and you fight not to get to that space, but you fight to stay in that space. And it's, it's a constant negotiation with yourself and with the bigger world. And I think part of that inherited guilt is because of the fact you're not really supposed to have made it. You're not really supposed to be here. And that's what you're constantly wrestling with the whole time. Um, particularly with people who were born on the finish line and they had funding, they've had support, they've had the whole nine and they're able to do all that. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but I'm saying it's important to understand the wider context of how people get to higher education what they've invested and how hard they've had to work. And yeah, it's true. Like it's a, it's a tautology. Like some of us have to work harder than others to get to the same place. That's just not reactionary Twitter woke crack. It is literally the truth of the world. Um, and when you get there, how do you stay there? I don't know if you have any thoughts about this kind of accessibility question. Well, I was going to say, I agree with you that I think there is this issue with poetry and people thinking they have to understand the poem. And that's only something I unlearned at my illy undergrad university education is that you don't have to get a poem. You can just, it's just a text and whatever you get out of it, that's cool. Like you can reinvent it. You can decide it's about something else for you. And that's actually very fun and part of how texts stay alive. And I remember this experience with my secondary school teacher reading John Donne's The Flea, and I didn't get that it wasn't about a flea. And this was terribly embarrassing. I was like, this is, oh, I feel so worthless. I didn't get that it wasn't about a flea. Um, but obviously now I would think that's really silly way to approach that. But I've also struggled with maybe not the flip side, but a feeling that sometimes is in tension with that, which is, like, I don't want to get into rupee core discourse, but when I see people being rude about her or making fun of her, I feel very uncomfortable because I know so many survivors of sexual violence really like her poetry. What I see is the issue is the industry that took one Instagram person and invested so much money in this one person rather than distributing that money around different types of poetry or different poets. I also want to not undermine people's whatever they're getting from poetry whose meaning is more literal or immediate. 
And again, with social media, I often think a three line poem that depicts one feeling really explicitly will often get a lot of retweets or whatever, but one that explores that feeling really intricately and with a lot of nuance alone. So I guess what I'm saying is going back to this accessibility thing, like that's fine. Enjoy Rupee Cool, but you might also enjoy Milkman and get something out of that about sexual assault. And then around accessibility and just coming to novels, which are material objects in a different way, in the sense a poem can be posted as a graphic or something. After I published my article, so Maya, who works at Burley Fisher, was talking to me about how the distribution and book selling is also very consolidated. So I think there's also a problem in terms of the Waterstones dude owns Waterstones and Dawn, and then there's Amazon. So, you know, what is being handed out to people, put on the tables, people are being told to read, is also like Waterstone says we're pushing Prince Harry's book this week. And then that's hundreds of bookshops across the country. And on Amazon, you have the algorithms as well. So I think there's also this question of how do books get put into people's hands, poetry, books, and other books. But when it's consolidated, even if a super weirdo, cool, edgy book gets published, is it being distributed and given to people? when the consolidation runs right through across to the moment of the book being in a shop. So I think the like distribution of texts that are even make it to publication is also another question. Yeah. There's something with Rupi Kaur, I get asked all the time. Not so much now, but definitely if you asked me five years ago, I would have got asked a lot, what do you think of Rupi Kaur? And I, I don't think Rupi Kaur is the issue. Uh, I think it's the infrastructure around Rupi Kaur. Like Hijara was saying, but then the culture also, I, I'm interested in, in the why. How is it that Rupi Kaur can bankroll 50% of the poetry industry with the sale of one book? And that's a cultural question. That's not an individual question. It's what she represents culturally and what her poetry does. So it's not to take anything away from because you can very quickly slip into that very snobbish elitist kind of like, you lot are just dumb, you haven't got, you could do that quite quickly. And so it's tenuous ground and you have to navigate it quite carefully. But I think with regards to the accessibility and consolidation, like the, the problem is there just isn't enough outlets to put poetry in front of people. And you're always at the whim of a prize or as Yara was saying, of a bookseller. And all of those yeah. things are driven by money and influence and clout like i've mm. i don't know it just it's and also why is it the same 15 books that are staples you'll always see like an armitage or a wendy cope or an Auden or the elliots like you see the canon it's ubiquitous every single bookshop you go to you'll see those books they're guaranteed where everything else is always like yeah maybe you'll see this or maybe you won't that i've never understood either like you've got the stayers and then you've got those that fluctuate. And I'm talking the kind of contemporary milieu. And maybe the, uh, the right time to jump in, but I wanted to bring it, you know, that debate on form and access to a text was specifically into fiction. And I was really excited about this podcast this morning because I feel that so many of these conversations that mirror one another, Lucy and I have been having in the lead up to deciding we were going to do the magazine. Um, and again, you know, to sort of pick up on something we were talking about before, we will return to, even though a lot of my friends are poets, even though I write poetry, I wasn't necessarily aware of how things worked on that front because I'm more aware of how they work within the, the industry that publishes fiction. So I just wanted to ask that question on, on form and politics. At one point in your article, Yara, you talk about receiving proofs to blurb and you yeah. say, oh, <laughs> this is a privilege. However, as a result, I've now read approximately 100 first chapters of psychologically realist fiction about the lives of university educated Anglophone young people. And then you qualify that statement in your essay. A word I wanted to pick up on is realism, because I've been thinking for a long time about this particular assumption about prose writing. I wonder if you share it, Yara, about the novel in particular, that it's supposed to in some way to represent reality. And that seems like a really reactionary claim to me, as well as one that isn't really true to my literary tradition. In Italy, we don't have a distinction between, for instance, memoir and novel. They're all novels. Mm. Mm. And, and I can actually speak to that tradition because it's the only other one that I know in depth, but that is striking to me. So this idea that, you know, when we assess the claim that fiction represents reality against the history of the novel genre that already falls apart, but for some reason we've circled back to it. We've circled back to literary realism being more or less the only acceptable gear to write mainstream fiction in or novels that sell. 
And this tendency towards representation is striking to me because we're now more likely to ask what a novel is about rather than what it does. And we're talking again about this reduction of complexity, which seems to come with an encouragement for writers to write about their own position self. And you talk about this. But something that I find funny, though, is that on the other hand, in the Anglophone literary market, which is a special one because it's so big and so influential and so linked to things like films, Hollywood and other modes of cultural production, we have these perceived conventions to reckon with. The need for a surprising plot, a sympathetic protagonist, a strong sense of place. There's a shape you should give the narrative so you can sell it. Something that Amber Usain talks about in her essay on illness a little bit. So we've got on one hand this demand for personalization for the link between the author and the novel to become explicit. But on the other hand, there's a need for spectacularization to produce a page turner. And what I really like about your writing is that you sort of challenge as you push back against, against these assumptions, not only in content, but in form too. And you do that not only through negative strategies like breaking up a text and fragmentation, but actually affirmative and participatory practices. I'm thinking about and there are more things and you invite the reader to read the words on the page with the characters. But yeah, just a broader question, maybe more related to fiction about this relationship between politics, your politics and politics more broadly and form. Yeah, okay, for real, we could talk about that for two hours or like two years, but I will try and talk about it for five minutes now. <laughs> but So I think, yeah, definitely what you're saying, there is this kind of received wisdom that realist fictions and fiction novels that adhere to the conventions of realism, but Anglophone realism, are what sells, what the market wants. Those are things that people believe in the publishing industry about selling novels. Now, they assume that that means that that's what's accessible because, but actually there's a sort of loop of causality here because if that's all that's on offer, that's what people will buy. Um, and if that's what's put marketed to them and put in their hands, it's what people will buy. So I think there is something to be said, just like Anthony said, for like obscure novels, novels that are a little bit difficult to read. Like I love Milkman. I love this book called Slash and Burn by Claudia Hernandez. They're books that you don't comfort read, right? It's difficult, but there's so much that's worth reading about them. And they're two of my favorite books. Same with Beloved. I'm not going to sit down and comfort read Beloved. So I think that there's something to be said for those books. That's also not what I write. Like what I write is, or I try and write is fiction that is very readable, but doesn't adhere to the conventions of realism on the page. So I try and say, why can't I, as a novelist, use all the tools on the page that poets use? Why can't I treat my writing like poetry? Why can't I use the space of the page? Like, I don't think taking an important phrase and putting it alone on a page makes a book harder to read. If anything, I think people like broken up text. So I think in terms of readability, people get confused between realism and adhering to conventions and what's actually readable. And I think that's really patronizing. Readers sometimes have a bit of an issue with the fact they use fewer full stops, but the blank space isn't difficult to read. And the fact that it says at the start of the book, when you hear a song playing on the page, you play it out loud too. I don't think that's confusing. So I think those things are perfectly readable, but they are disrupting the conventions of the novel. And similarly, when I leave untranslated text in Portuguese, I guess that makes it a bit less accessible, but then most people have a phone. So I don't think it's that deep. So I guess there are a few things there, like people confusing conventionality with accessibility. I don't think that they are actually the same thing. And then I think the other thing is to do with the industry and how it's structured. So I think most people who work in publishing are not reading fiction outside of the anglophone market. I think there's so much different diversity of form and style and content and genre that happens and is taken for granted outside of the anglophone market but because we are so insular we just don't really engage with it and I think again that feeds into this idea that the only thing that people can read is what they are already being given and there's also all of this stuff around particularly the American the North American novel being the story of one person and the story of the individual and this was something that was sponsored by the U.S. state I mean and you can argue about how effective it was as a form of propaganda but it's documented that during the Cold War the Iowa workshop was set up by the American state in order to promote the national literature of the individual. So I think that for whatever reason, and I, and I, I, I'm, I think that the literature will always speak back and always undermine any kind of sort of state meaning that is imposed on it. So I'm not entirely convinced by that, but I do think that we have started to take for granted in the Anglosphere that a novel can only be the realist story of an individual. 
And that's bonkers. Like a novel can have 10 protagonists. Literally, why not? A novel doesn't have to give resolution. It doesn't have to give catharsis. It doesn't have to be compassionate or empathetic or politically ambivalent. I think those are just conventions and norms that have become invisibilized because people aren't getting out more in terms of what they're reading. Um, I always think about when my novel was translated into Italian, someone else translated it who's also a writer and a dear friend of mine. And we were talking about writing practices afterwards. And I said to her, we were discussing sympathetic protagonists, which is such an assumption I find in the UK that your protagonist has to be likable. And I just, that wasn't a question I would have ever asked myself. And I was like, oh, I'm just so fed up with this. And my translator was like, I'm so confused because what I'm fed up of is writing about evil with a capital E. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. I don't know what that says about the Italian industry that that's what we like. Apparently <laughs> that is the pressure there. So it really does vary, doesn't it? <laughs> I wonder if we should move on to asking you guys. We asked you to bring in a text or a quote or an extract related to either your articles or the magazine themes by another writer. Yara, did you bring in a few? So I've just got a short quote from a book called Break Em Up by Zephyr Teachout. And Zephyr Teachout is an antitrust academic based in the US. And I haven't read the whole book, which I don't think is necessary to get the meaning out of this quote. And again, it's a quote that like when my partner was explaining antitrust or competition as it's known here and consolidation to me, I found really helpful and it feeds into the end of the article. So what she says is, to preserve rough economic and political equality, we should make it easier to organize people and harder to organize capital. It should be as easy to unionize or create a cooperative as it is hard to merge Goliaths. Yeah, I really think it would be helpful for us as writers to understand ourselves as workers and to understand and to organize together with all workers across the industry booksellers, editors, production editors, freelance copyright editors, we're all workers in the industry. We are labor and they are capital. And it's very easy for them to organize themselves. That's how they have all squished into one giant body in a huge building because they're so organized. So we need to get organized. And also arguably we should own the means of production. That's like the next step. But yeah, I think it's that framework, which for me was like a little light bulb moment about organizing labor and making it harder to organize capital. I think the unionization of publishers is really important, but I think it also meets great resistance from publishers. One of the things I would say about this, because I've spent the last year as a co-president of a GCU branch, is that lots of people don't understand what a union is. Like on the surface, they think they do, but it's still thought of as a service rather than this idea of actually you are the union, you are collectively responsible for it. And I think that's partly because unions require a monthly membership fee. So people pay these fees and feel like they're paying for a service like Spotify or something. And the, that sense is slightly lost. And the other is that I think this is so important that workers do unionize, that it would be great to get experienced organizers such as yourself, Yara, in from the beginning. Because one of the problems that I've seen with the ECU is that there's such a social hierarchy in academic institutions that also gets replicated within the structure of the union. And I think while it is essential that this happens, the diversity of these jobs that you mentioned, for example, say somebody's got a very established position in a publishing house or in a union with somebody who's very casualized, can risk kind of replicating the the issue so they're just two thoughts really towards perhaps the practicalities of doing what i think that's totally true and i think the thing that i would love to discuss with people more broadly who are interested in doing this is where are we doing the unionizing because at the moment there's the nuj for workers in publishing there's a separate one for booksellers i think and there's society of authors or the writers guild for authors and writers Society of Authors does work a lot like an NGO or a service. I, I can't see it calling us to take industrial action unless we took it over. So I think there are the questions I have, like, should we go and take over the Society of Authors and make it militant? Should we start a new union like the sex workers have done with their union and try to do it with all these other workers? 
I don't know what the best path is. And I have got experience organizing, but not as a trade unionist. So those are the conversations I want to have. Like, where are we going to do this? Are we going to do this, make the Society of Authors radical? Or are we going to do it somewhere else? Like, yeah, I'm interested. I think it's important to say that this is an open call that everybody can participate in on a level. Because I find that, again, kind of from what Lucy was saying as well, that it's good to have experience organizing, but there are a lot of sorts specialisms that can be covered by a single individual in this state sort of you know chipping in from multiple fronts like i mean yeah everything that you guys have been saying i mean i'm not part of a union and there's reasons why exactly what lucy's saying because of the intersections within literature i've done a lot of work with the gftu and unions like this and we've spoken about setting up something that is particularly for poets but again the problem is because the job of a poet is so ambiguous that the main question people have, do I need an agent? Do I need an agent to publish? That's literally where everyone's thing is. It's not about you need to unionize, I'm being exploited. Should I be getting paid? They go on the Society of Authors website, they check their day rate, like you should be charging 175 pounds a day. And that's it. They use that as the standard. So I think there's not enough people in the game in order for it to be high stakes. And when it's high stakes, that's when exploitation and things like that can occur. I think at the moment, from how I see it, the, the malaise, the gripe is with invisibility. Like people just want to be visible because there isn't enough windows to show how many people do the thing. And the money isn't big enough either to cause that much of a stir. Whereas I think that when you get into novel writing and you could be getting 80, 90 grand for a debut advance, it's a whole different ballgame. The poetry, you're dealing with 500 quid, 12 readers and a bookshop somewhere in Amersham that's going to stick your book out forward facing. I think that's, it's trying to work out what the union would do and what interests would have for people who are practicing poetry as opposed to like nonfiction or, or essays or fiction or whatever. I mean, it's a roundabout argument, but my argument, if I were trying to recruit you to my trade union would be, you want more people to read poetry. Who puts the books on shelves? It's the publishers. And the only way that we can have any leverage against the publishers is if we get together as workers. You'll have more leverage as a poet if you unionise with the novelists who are on 90k for a debut. debut. A lot of the time when I've been into bookshops and I've spoken to the bookseller and I've been like, why is there no outspoken press books on the shelf? We publish 35 poets and we haven't got one book in your entire collection. And all they say is, oh yes. Yeah, just write your email down here and we'll get someone. Nothing ever happens. Well, obviously every publisher wants their book on the bookshelf, but then it's the bookseller or the distributor or the person who is in charge of that region who then ultimately decides we're going to stick. And I would say again, what you want there, it's not the bookseller who's making the choice that's hurting outspoken press. It will be whoever is buying books at that shop, whether that's higher up in Waterstones or the boner of that shop. Yeah. So the more you empower the bookseller by unionizing with them, the more power they have to put books out or influence what's bought. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, again, also it goes back to sellability as well. I was thinking that the things that address the origin of the structure that hurts the writers and readers and, and the circulation end the things can maybe be addressed at the same time. Maybe these are different facets of the work that we can do. And actually, Lucy and I had a question on organizing. Yeah, you have a question, which is, both of you are active facilitators and organizers engaged on multiple fronts, from abolitionism to climate justice, and are involved in various projects that broaden participation in the arts. Could you both talk a little about some of the perspectives that this community work has brought to your understanding of ideas about work, time and value? And do these activities conflict with your writing? Yeah, I think without spoken, which has been 11 years in the running for me is a community project. It's about platforming other poets, musicians, giving them a space, giving them an audience that is attentive, that feels large and generous. And, and I think that the mission with that project from its conception came out of like, I want to create a stage that poets feel proud to go and read their work at. as a community, I think that poetry is very communal in, in the way that it works. I think that it's dependent on mentoring, on friendships, on relationships. People know how nepotistic it is, 
but that's the nature of the way that it's designed, right? We all work with and among each other. I wanted to have that as a platform for other people. And yeah, it takes up 60, 70% of my time doing that on a regular basis. And we get paid peanuts. I tell you, we get paid 175 pound a month each to make that thing happen. It's a labor of love that I could be using that time to write my own things with, um, I'm working on my own projects, but I think you need it. I think you need those spaces. You need to have something that poets feel proud to go and an audience that are really there for it as well. Like they're hungry to hear poetry, not just spoken word or not just page stuff, but across the whole milieu. Yeah. I've been to outspoken press events and they're so good. And I remember many years ago, my friend Bridget launched her debut collection yeah. with nice. you. And it was like one of the best launches I've ever been to. And the first one I ever went to. And I think it really like honors the poets. And it's not something that you see the publishing industry do for people where they're just like, sort yourself out. Yeah. And I think that's really, really important, particularly when you're working with people that haven't been given that space to just honor what they're doing, take your time and do it, do it really right. I think it's also really strategic and effective. But yeah, so I really, like, I've always been a fan of your work for ages around that. And actually, you know where you remember this, but one of the first times I ever read my work was with you at Brainchild in maybe 2017. Oh, shit. Yeah. And I remember you read after me and you were like, everyone gather around, get closer. And I was like, oh, that's really smart. I should do that next time. I just got on stage and was like, I'm going to read something really more about sexual assault. But anyway, but going back to your question, I guess... I like being in activist spaces and organizing. I think I feel really restless and powerless if I if I didn't exist in those spaces. And I think the intersection of abolitionist approaches to sexual violence and feminism and climate reparations just also gives me hope in the world and makes me feel less depressed. So it's also, I get a lot out of it. And yeah, I think There Are More Things was really a love letter to like Sisters Uncut and my kind of experiences of, of organizing. So yeah, this stuff takes time, but I don't know how you feel, Anthony, but like sometimes I need to do something that's exciting and fast paced and other people are involved. Yeah. I like the balance. I'd love to be paid more for my writing, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to not work with other people. Yeah. It's a transaction. I think that, you know, that there's different kinds of fulfillment that supersede money. And the problem is that we need money to stay alive. I'm at that age now, but I've got a lot of friends who are late thirties, early forties, and they've been doing their job for a good 15, 20 years, like the same job. And they're all on six figure salaries. And what's really interesting is that in this kind of job, I might be doing this for the next 40 years. Could you ever get, and all, I mean, some of my, my cousins are like, they're car sales, like they sell cars. They've been doing it for a long time. They're very good at it like they're car salesmen and they're on six figure salaries. And I kind of figure, could a writer ever get to that point? If we, if we equate experience and time with money, so in other words, the more you know about something, the more your value goes up because you can contribute to that thing better. You have a more robust understanding, but in art, it's so interesting because it doesn't equate in that way at all. The metrics are completely skewed. In other words, you can have a debut writer who knows nothing about anything, but they've just got a really good book and they land a six figure salary for reasons that it's marketable or it's really interesting, but it's a lot about experience because it's a date. It's their first run on the gauntlet. I guess what I'm talking about is professional experience versus artistic experience. How do you quantify artistic experience? Maybe this is a good case for unionization, considering the uncertainty of the future, you know, we need to all think that we can have maybe basic social care and pay bills into old age as writers and have yeah. some kind of security that maybe something like a union could help us. Yeah, for sure. I think that one of the reasons why a lot of freelancers who aren't associated with the university or with higher education are so entrepreneurial and self-promoting because of that precarity. So if I'm not out there making noise and I've been a freelancer my whole life, I know what that feels like to think shit. I might not have any money next month if I don't say yes to all of these. I'm going to go to Skegness and read for 50 quid. If unions addressed freelancers who are the most precarious, then I feel that it might be a different thing. I want to say quickly that, yeah, traditionally trade unions have been completely workplace based. 
But then with the rise of the gig economy, newer unions are more willing to unionize gig workers like delivery drivers, etc. So yeah, that's the choice. Do we start something new like the Sex Workers Union and make it broad-based? Or do we try and make these different unions that already exist work together? And yeah, traditional trade unions come with baggage, don't they, sometimes? Is it to atomize? Is literature, is the writer, the function of the writer and how the writer sustains themselves? Is it too atomized to be able to reach a point where everyone can benefit? I don't think so. I think it's possible, but I think it requires an amount of political education and showing people that writing is not a unique romantic thing. It's like other work. Because for example, what if someone really big, like what's his name, who writes the murder books, what if he put into his next contract, I want all the copy editors that work on this book to be brought in-house. I don't want anyone working on this to earn under 30K. That could be done, but we'd have to organize and all see ourselves as workers for that to happen. But that sort of thing already happens in film, where like a big director will write into their contract that they want a diversity rider. So it's doable, I think. I feel like, Anthony, one of your questions about unionization is resting on the premise that as many writers are freelancers, they're going to have contracts which don't give them any workers rights and so being part of a union would effectively be a waste of their time but I do think that firstly legal actions can be taken to improve workers contracts like Yara is saying in relation to the publishing contracts but also that I think many people don't go to things like employment tribunals or take legal action or yeah. whatever it is they need assistance with because it's so expensive. Yeah. And that's where a union would be really great. And actually some of our biggest successes have come from legal work, which although depressing, actually does make changes, but it's very expensive. So you need this collective funding. Yeah. You know, like it's a shame to move on from this conversation, but maybe we can pin it there and return to it. Perhaps a good time to bring in your text, Anthony. Yes, I'm going to read from Marina the Schmidt's speculation as a mode of production. This book really has helped in my thinking around this thing. I think art is such a huge, such a vast subject that I'm trying to find how it relates specifically to poetry. I think this is a very underwritten area on how we value art, I think has been covered a lot, but poetry and value. Um, so she writes here in, on page 128 in chapter three, whereas capital and art once confronted each other as heteromony and autonomy. Now they seem to share a certain utopian vision of an automatic subject that can valorize itself indefinitely. This affinity of course has certain limitations. Art can at best be a flattering self-image of capital, which is actuated by profit and is thus as far as can be from the Kantian aesthetic principle of disinterest. Yet to the extent that both seek to discipline, transcend and marginalize labor in favor of numinous and uncertain gains, the interest of capital and the disinterest of art have as much potential to converge as they do to diverge, whether materially or ideologically. I think she's just discussing the idea of what Adorno called a negative dialectic or Marx called fictitious capital. So it's this idea that they're negative entities. And I think for Marxist terms, fictitious capital was something that could accrue wealth over time. So in other words, like a painting, it doesn't have an immediate value, but if it was bought in and it became valuable over time, culturally that then translates to financial capital, economic capital. And so I think what she's talking about is the two things constantly being at odds with each other, how the making of art, the actual artifact itself is one thing, but then the labor, the thought that goes into it, they're constantly at odds with each other. And at what point does that thought start to become value? You look at a Banksy painting or you look at a Cezanne or a Da Vinci. What's interesting with Eliot's text is you can't actually buy the original wasteland. You can't buy the manuscript. It's basically priceless because it's not for sale, which I didn't get to cover in the essay. If I develop this more, I'll talk about things that are not for sale, that we know they have a value, but they're not for sale. Like what does that tell us about, you know, how, how they work? But yeah, I think what uh, that whole section there was, I, I was really interested in how she creates this binary mode of capital and then speculative thought. 
and she's constantly pivoting the two against each other throughout the whole book. And it's dense, but you, you take your time with it and you just start to unpick what she's saying there. I, th I think one of the really valuable things she does in that book is saying that thought is work in the way that writings work. And we so often think of it being not work and how that kind of labor permeates discourse in different ways as hidden labor. But also when you're reading that, I was thinking of something when I was reading that book too, which was the use of creative creativity as a kind of icing or sprinkling on various kinds of labor that that ends up actually increasing the labors of the workers. I'm thinking here of food culture and stuff and MasterChef or whatever, where it's like you have to have an emotional investment and enjoy a creative aspect of the work to make it meaningful. But actually, it's just another way of making that product more like accruing more capital in various ways. And it's actually very cynical or the way creativity as a term is used so cynically in so many kind of public ways. Yeah. But it's, yeah. it's interesting that like, when Yara was saying right at the beginning, I think a lot of this is about trying to break the hegemony and heteronomy, which is what she mentions there, like autonomy, heteronomy and hegemony, trying to like move out of the singular. Which is what, when you look at commercial publishing and the people that have the money to put into, not necessarily books, but the PR machine that comes with them. And that's what I realized. I track books and I read them and I think this was a very average book, but the way that people are going on about it, it's like, it's literally just cracked Rosetta Stone. Like it's the idea of how much money do you put behind the thing? And that's not to say that people are stupid. It's to say that people are actually very smart, but if something is constantly happening and occurring, you're going to start to pay Sally Rooney, for example. I've never seen that PR campaign that Faber put in was absolutely bonkers. It was mad. It was like a computer game was being launched or something. It was on par with that kind of thing. So I think it's trying to break, which is again, what she's talking about here, trying to come out of that and look at the different ways in which it works. But then you also have to accept that you can't force things onto people either, which could be part of the problem. This kind of zealot forthright way of you need to be reading this and why are people reading that? Reading is reading. You can't dictate the vagaries of public taste, but what you can do is bring things to people's attention to at least give them the choice, which I think again, what Yara was saying. Yeah, absolutely. And it takes work that's done, I think, on the ground, providing those platforms in a real concrete sense. And then it's work that needs to be done structurally, I think, around unionization and the structures that organize that capital. And maybe since we've been talking about writing as work a lot, we can keep our final question, which we're asking every set of horses who are in conversation on these podcasts quite short because they talked about lots of things we could be doing to improve working conditions for writers. But maybe one thing that you feel is perhaps the most urgent thing that you think might improve our and your working conditions as writers. So what would you change? I think it's the ability to say no to work. I think for me, the impulse to say yes versus the fact that actually I can't, like I'm, you know, I, I'm at capacity, but you say yes anyway, because I think there is an, an innate anxiety that says you're going to be out of work. You're going to have no money. And I, I grew up in a family that had this immigrant anxiety that whatever work was, you went there. Even if you didn't want to do it, if you were cleaning shit from a toilet, you do it because it's work. And I think they've instilled that in me. And I think a lot of other writers as well, but there is something really liberating about just saying, I can't do it. I think there's a bigger question than that precarity that we were talking about before. And even though you know that you're you're not going to have to go back to the job center, but there's something inside you that says, yeah, but you might. And so you better just take the job for like a hundred quid in a boiled suite um, and shut up. Okay. Universal basic income for writers. They have something like this in Ireland. Better pay and lower rent across sectors because every writer has another job. And if their other job paid better and their rent was lower, they'd have more time for writing. Open and funded libraries, higher unionization rates and more industrial action. Those are my four. An excellent list from both of you. Um, thank you both so much. Thank you so much both. Uh, it's been a real pleasure and a privilege to talk to you and to publish your essays. And I'm really glad to see that they're continuing to circulate. 
really widely. And I think that that not to pat ourselves on the back, but to pat you guys on the back a little bit. <laughs> you deserve it. I think that that's already a symptom of the fact perhaps more people than we saw think deeply and in a complex way about these issues. And maybe there just wasn't a venue yet that focuses on this strictly. And, and we hope certainly that we can continue to broaden the conversation. Yeah. Thank you all so much. Thank you for setting too little, too hard up. I think it's amazing already and it's just going to keep being more amazing. And Anthony, it's really cool to be on this podcast with you. Remembering that like one of my first reading in front of people experiences was with you. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, it's really been, it's been amazing. I think the whole project, the initiative, the concept has been superb. So yeah, well done. That was good stuff. Thanks for listening to the Too Little Too Hard podcast. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion today. We are grateful to our funders, the Royal Society of Literature and the Department of English at the University of Exeter. Visit our website, tlth.co.uk, to read the full articles. Bye for now.